How I love your word, how it lights my path, how it guides my way. From Acts chapter 27, if you can turn there with me, if you have your Bibles here, Acts 27 and verses 1 to 26. And we've already had a hint at the story, but we are continuing to follow Paul in his journeys with Jesus through the book of Acts on his way to Rome. Acts 27, verses 1 to 26. And you'll have to excuse me, there's a lot of names here to get my tongue around, so I'm just going to confidently speak them out. And if you think there's a better pronunciation, you can tell me afterwards. Okay. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in an Adramitian ship, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, We put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. The next day, we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. From there, we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus, because the winds were contrary. When we had sailed through the sea, along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, We landed at Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. When we had sailed slowly for a good many days, and with difficulty had arrived off Cnidus, since the wind did not permit us to go farther, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmone. And with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lassia. When considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them. And he said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives." But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. Because the harbour was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there, if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbour of Crete, facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. When a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete, close inshore. But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Euroquillo. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and we just let ourselves be driven along. Running under the shelter of a small island called Clouda, We were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. 
After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship. And fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Syrtis, they let down the sea anchor and in this way let themselves be driven along. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small storm was assailing us, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. When they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damaging loss. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told but we must run aground on a certain island. Dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Let's pray for David as he brings God's message to us from this passage. Lord Jesus, we do thank you so much for David. We thank you for the gift he is to us here in the body of Christ. We pray now for your blessing, your Holy Spirit to fill him. We pray you'd strengthen him to give us the words that you've given him. And we pray that he'll be blessed in the process. Lord, change us and challenge us in your word today. Amen. Amen. Thank you, David read somewhere that that was the best bit of narrative writing on ancient sea voyages in the whole of our history. So what Luke wrote. Now, <clears throat> this morning when I was asleep in bed, I had a dream. And I dreamt that I was standing at the front of the Bonhoeffer and that I was expected to give a children's talk. And I thought, I don't even know what I'm supposed to speak about. And I've certainly got nothing to say. Perhaps today, after I've finished, you'll think, well, he didn't really know what he was speaking about, and he had very little to say that was of any value. About 35 years ago, a Swedish woman called Maria Gell came to Ichthus to join the one-year training course called Network. She was paired up with another lady called Elsa, and they were both attached to the Ichthus Beckenham congregation that John Roberts led. For the whole of the year, Maria Gell, the Swedish woman, was allocated to the house group which uh, my wife Anne and I led. Um, She had been a teacher, and besides being a woman of great faith, She um, was extremely gifted in both dramatically and and could write music as well as play instruments. And when when she went back to Sweden to teach again, um, she used to write operas for the school to perform. So we we were incredibly blessed to have, not just for her musical ability, but but for her faith as well. 
And um, at the end of the year with Network, and her last house group with us, um, she said, I would like to be married. I wonder if you as a house group would pray for me to find the right man so that I can get uh, married. And so as a house group, we came round and we laid hands on her and we prayed to the Lord that she'd find the right person. And uh, several months later, she wrote to us and said, I have found the right person. He's a man called Bjorn and we are engaged. And um, a few months after that, Anne and I were invited to her wedding in Sweden. And Swedish weddings are very different from what English weddings, well, they were at that time. Um, and we became, Anne and I became great friends with them as a family, and um, we went over to spend time with them several times in Sweden, and they and their family came over and spent time with us in Beckenham. On one of our visits, they told us that they'd been working a lot with the immigrants and refugees who had flooded into Sweden. Just like uh, Britain's got loads of refugees and migrants who are trying to cross the channel and flood into Britain, uh, Sweden had a, a similar problem. And um, they started to work with them and they um, helped them to learn um, English and, um, and they led several of them to the Lord. So it was a very good work that they were doing. But also, they realized that these migrants wouldn't be able to stay on and get visas for Sweden unless they could work. So they set up a cleaning company where um, they trained the migrants into the sort of standards of work that if you were um, cleaning a private house in Sweden or if you were cleaning a commercial property in, that you, they would expect. And so they set up this company and got them working in it and, um, and so that they could earn money and prove that they'd got a job and that sort of thing. But also, Bjorn, her husband, was a very skilled carpenter, and he used to be employed um, fitting up new kitchens in new-built houses, you know. The house would be built by a builder, and they say, you go and fit up the whole kitchen. But also he did, if, if people wanted to change their kitchen, he would uh, do that sort of work as well. He'd go in and, and change it for them. And if the... Um, refugees or the migrants had skills sufficient for it, he would employ them in the carpentry and, and this work. So they were building up a big community, and they used to have um, a Christian meeting for them once a week. And when we were there, um, Bjorn and Maria invited Anna and me to go, go to it. And um, while we were sitting there, they said, Maria said to us, have you got any questions you'd like to ask them? So Anne asked the question. She said, what is the most dangerous experience that you've had? And one by one, they started to um, tell us and about fleeing from abusive regimes, about traveling in the most incredible conditions, um, fearing death at all sorts of stages, and eventually finding safety in Sweden. And I remember as we listened to this, and it wasn't just one story, it was lots of them had been through the most horrendous of conditions. I thought, I've never been in danger like this at any time in my life. It was very um, 
Sally, it made me think. Now, why am I mentioning this? It's because we're about, we've had a passage which talks about um, Paul and his friends and, and the whole ship's company who go through extreme danger. And I want us to really consider that as to when we face danger, how do we react to it? Another subject I'm going to move on to. When I was a, a student considering university nearly 70 years ago, it's hard to believe, but uh, um, they had far fewer universities and colleges of further education and far fewer opportunities for people to do further study. It was very different conditions. And in those days, most of the universities um, it provided you passed your A-levels, you just had an interview and they let you in. And for instance, my brother, older brother who wanted to study medicine, um, he just had an interview with a London hospital and they said to him, um, if you pass your A-levels, we'll offer you a place to come and study to be a doctor. But some universities still insisted that they wanted to give you exams after your A-levels. Um, and you went in and you took what are called either entrance or scholarship exams. They didn't just offer you a place. I guess if you were an England footballer, they might have offered you a place. But if you were a normal student, they didn't offer you a place. You, you had to take these exams. And you usually took them in a couple of subjects. And then there would be a translation paper where they gave you passages of prose in about uh, 10 or 12 different languages, right? different passages, and they said, translate as many as you can. Um, I did really well at that. <laughs> the only thing that I even recognized was a bit of French. Um, but then there was a general paper, and that was unpredictable. And it was the sort of thing where you got um, lots of questions on it, three or four questions, and they would say, what is your view on this, or comment on this? And you would be given... Probably you had about three hours to answer four questions, so you'd write essays on each of these. And one of the ones, the general office, general questions that I stuck with me, which I saw at that time, and it's remained with me in my... This is what the examiners put on the thing. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man, and they are at their wit's end. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet, so he guides them to their desired haven. The exam question was, comment on this. Of course the examiners are quoting Psalm 107, verses 23 to 30, um, which is where this whole passage has come from. And, um, and of course Paul really have known this very well. Our passage today includes a great storm and great danger. 
After his trial before Felix, the Roman governor, and King Agrippa, it was Herod Agrippa number two, um, who was the king at that time, even though they found no real fault in Paul, because he had previously appealed to Caesar, he had to be sent to Rome for trial in Caesar's courts. The year is AD 59. The emperor at that time was Augustus Caesar. He had previously been named Octavius, but when he changed his name, and when he became the emperor, he changed his name to Augustus Caesar. We've met him once before in Luke chapter 2 and verse 1, where it says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This is the reason why Joseph and Mary had to move from Nazareth down to Bethlehem and the way that the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem fulfilled the ancient prophecy. But that was over 60 years previously. We're now a long way from, from that time, but Augustus is still the emperor. And Paul is to be escorted on this trip by a centurion called Julian of the Augustan Regiment. Perhaps the emperor's special guards for his safety uh, and to carry out work directly for him. They don't seem to really know why this regiment was called the Augustan Regiment, but so people make guesses. Centurions in a legion of Roman soldiers usually were responsible for about 100 men. Interestingly, in the New Testament, most centurions seem to have been reviewed favorably. It's quite amazing that all of them get quite favorable reviews as you go through them, as you go through it. So when, having set off from Caesarea, they go just a little way up the coast to Sidon uh, on their, their transport, um, to, when they get to Sidon, um, and they dock there, Paul's allowed to go by the, the centurion says, you can go and see your friends and get some care and come back and be ready to carry on after we've done that. How did Luke and Aristarchus, or Aristarchus, get permission to travel with Paul on this military-controlled journey? We do not know. That's the, the real answer. Luke may, because he was a doctor, may have been accepted to come on board as a sort of like a ship's doctor. One commentator suggests that Aristarchus, who was a Thessalonican from Macedonia, that he offered to be Paul's slave, and so he would be accepted. Now, there is no evidence for that at all. This is just a, a commentator uh, giving a guess. But you have to remember that in about 1730, some Moravian Christians were so concerned about the slaves that they sold themselves into slavery so that they could go and minister to the, um, the Africans and others who were going to be slaves. If Aristarchus did this in order to be with Paul, a tremendous sacrifice, you know, selling, letting yourself become a slave, but we don't know. So I just want to say there's no evidence of that, except we do know, have evidence of Christians who did the very same sort of thing later on. From Sidon, that's on the, the, the coast, quite near Lebanon, um, 
they sailed up between the north coast of Cyprus and the south coast of what we call Turkey. And they dock at a port called Myra in Turkey. And they changed ship um, to a ship from Alexandria. This would have been a much larger ship. Um, basically, Egypt in those days supplied a lot of the grain food to Rome. And so there would have been a regular flow of vessels um, going to Rome from there. And so they get on this boat. The journey starts to become difficult. The winds are contrary, and they proceed slowly to the south of Crete, which is 140 miles wrong, and they put in a harbor about halfway along in a place called Fair Havens, and it's not a very suitable harbor, um, but only a small town near it. At that time, sailing in the Mediterranean was considered dangerous between the 14th of September and the 11th of November. You didn't sail after the 11th of November. It was too dangerous, and, and you didn't sail again until the spring. But between the 14th of September and the 11th of November, it was considered a dangerous time to sail, but still okay to sail. Now, the text which Luke puts in says, the fast was over. And by the fast, he's talking about the Day of Atonement, the Jewish fast of the Day of Atonement which in AD 59, the year we're talking about, was on the 5th of October. And so they're sailing sometime after the fast, sometime after the 5th, towards the 11th of November, which is the, the end of the dangerous period before it becomes the impossible period. Then comes contention. Paul wanted to harbor where they were, and, and he explains, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. But Julius the centurion was persuaded more by the helmsman or the pilot of the ship and the owner of the ship than the things spoken by Paul. <clears throat> the owner had a vested interest in keeping going. He wanted to take, get the grain to Rome as quickly as possible and, and, and to sell it. <coughs> it's the way businessmen work. Um, obviously, the crew of sailors didn't want to spend the winter. You have to remember that if they docked and stayed where they were, they would probably be there till the spring. What do you view of a group of sailors in a, in a tiny village for three to four months? It's a foreign village, and you're there for three to four months. How do you spend your time? So it wasn't a very... Um, for them, they would have thought, much better if we could go further and go to a big town. Where, where I'm just sort of putting forward suggestions. I, I don't know these things, but, but certainly they all voted to keep going. The majority voted to sail on, and Julian was persuaded to do this, so Paul's advice was ignored. Do we always take the advice of a man or woman of God? Years and years ago, I knew a man and his wife who were considering buying a house. And the man asked some church leaders, and I don't know who these church leaders were, if it would be a good thing for him to buy this house. And he said they told him to go ahead. But I do not know what they told him. It may have been just that if you can afford a house, it's a good investment to buy a house. I have no idea what the advice was. He didn't, he didn't tell me that. 
he went to house, he went ahead and he bought the house and it proved to be a disaster. I do not know if he'd even had a survey or just that, or did he just think, perhaps naively, that the, the views of men and women of God can't be wrong, you know, you can trust them and they think, and you can, but not necessarily about every detail of life. I do know that because he, he felt he'd been given the wrong answer, he got very, very angry about it. In 1991, I was about to be made redundant, and I was in my mid-50s, and at that time, quite often the impression was that if you were made redundant at that time, there wasn't much work for older people. They wanted young people uh, to work. And so I was facing quite a difficult situation. And then I had um, a call from one of the senior directors of the firm that I worked for, and um, who I'd worked, done some projects for when I was overseas with, and uh, he'd been the director in charge. Uh, and I'd also worked for another guy who'd been the manager of the local office, who was now the, the regional manager for the whole of the Midlands at Birmingham. And they phoned me and told me they didn't want me to be made redundant, but they were planning to open a brand new office at Loughborough to serve the whole of the East Midlands. Would I like to go out there and be the manager of that office and, um, and look after all the jobs and try and get jobs in the whole of the East Midlands? It um, was a very good and tempting offer. But I decided at that time, I was in ICTHUS, and I decided to ask Ray Mayhew for his advice, what he would. And so he called me in, and um, we talked, and we prayed, and we considered it, and we both came to the conclusion. We talked about how would it affect my life. Anne had just started working for ICTHUS. How would it affect Anne's life? Our children were mostly just about finished university, so it possibly would have affected them less. Um, but what about my life in the church and Anne's life in the church and um, and I knew it couldn't be as the sort of job you could do Monday to Friday and come home and be home at weekends it was it would be too all-embracing and we both agreed it was better to turn it down and set up on my own but though I listened and took notice and was very very glad to have Ray Mayhew's input on it I didn't think he could make the decision for me I had to make the decision and stand with it for better or for worse. And that's what I did. I was very, very glad for his advice. But I took the decision, no, to shut down, set up my own company, and try to work um, single-handed and see if I could get work. Should Paul's answer have been weighed more carefully? Paul had traveled over 3,500 miles on the sea and um, was a very experienced worker. Sorry, very experienced sailor, not worker. He was a very experienced worker too, but he was a very experienced sailor. Now, in the epistle to the Corinthians, um, chapter 1, and in verse 11, 25, this is what he says. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent on the deep. And then in verse 27, he says, I have been in frequent dangers on the sea. 
he was just no ordinary man. And you have to remember that he wrote 1 Corinthians in the year 55, right? So that was four years before this um, sailing thing. So he'd already been shipwrecked three times. He'd already been um, on a boat or a plank of wood for a day and a night in the ocean. He knew quite a lot about sailing and because of all the journeys he'd been to. He was a very knowledgeable layman, if you might take it, but very experienced in that. At that time, Paul doesn't say, when he does that first speech to them, that God has told him this. But he is such a man of God that his wisdom and thinking, even if he hasn't specifically heard from the Lord about this, would be guided by the Lord. So his advice was extremely good advice. But he doesn't boast about any wisdom. He doesn't say, look, I've been shipwrecked three times, I've done all this, etc., etc. He doesn't boast about that. He just says, this is my opinion. And at that stage, he's not claiming that God told him this. But it's easy to see why Julian would be swayed by the owner, the helmsman, and the crew of sailors. He would have thought, they're the men who spend their lives on the sea. They've got all the experience. Their, their whole thing is about, I'll follow them. And erroneously, he does follow their advice. They continue to sail on because a south wind has come and it looks as helpful. And then the wind changes into a northeaster, which blows them out, and they have incredible trouble. We need to know what sort of tools the sailors had then. They had square-rigged sails, you know, a mast with squares of cloth or leather up. They could not sail directly into the wind. The ships didn't have a rudder. They had two paddles at the rear of the boat to help to steer it from one way to the other. They didn't have triangular sails. Triangular sails were developed by the Arabs in the second century. Caravels, which are two or three masted ships with triangular sails that you can move around and so catch different winds, were not in use until between the 15th and 17th century. They didn't have a magnetic compass. The magnetic compass was invented by the Chinese between the 11th and 12th centuries. They didn't have a telescope. A telescope was invented in the Netherlands or Holland in 1608. They didn't have a sextant so that they could take the uh, angles on stars because this was only suggested for the first time in 1757 by a Royal Naval officer. They didn't have a ship's chronometer which keeps the time accurately to whichever time you start off with so that when you, see, when you can take the sun the sun at midday and say this is noon where we are, if you've got one that's got a, a registered time, you can work out the longitude like that. Ship's chronometers didn't come in until 1761. How did they navigate? They didn't have any of the aids any modern ship would have as standard. 
They could only navigate by what they could see. By knowing that the sun rose in the east and went down to the, in the west, you could get, the, you could get the north and south from that, couldn't you? Right? Uh, by knowing the stars and their positions, like the pole star, you could get north. All their navigation skills depended on clear visibility. The storm they encountered was horrendous. The first thing they do is bring the ship's boat on, with great difficulty, they bring it onto the thing. Then they did what is called frapping, and Luke is very clear and he tells you about this. Frapping is where you take, well, in modern days, horses, but in, in those days, very strong ropes, and you put them under the boat, right, and then you bring them to the top and you tighten them right up. And so they, they then pull the hull together so that any joints in the hull get slammed tight so that you get no leakage. So, and Luke is very clear that, that, that this is what they did. Sorry, just go on. They were drifting and they did not know where they were. Because they had the storm and it says they didn't see the sun or, or anything or the stars for many days. If all you and no landmarks at all. If all the things that you can navigate on are not there and you're in the middle of a storm, you're going to be lost when you've got nothing that can tell you where you are. And the other danger was that there were shallow quicksands off the coast of what is modern Libya and Tunisia, which were a graveyard for many ships. Ships went on to this and, um, and they think, we have the same condition in England. We call them the Goodwin Sands. They're in between, uh, just off the coast of Dover towards Deal. Over 2,000 ships have been lost in the Goodwin Sands. Now, these sands, Luke, I love, love Luke's details. He calls these was the um, Sirtis Sands, were the same sort of thing where lots of ships had been lost. And if you're in the middle of the ocean and you know that somewhere to the south of you, or, or, or well, maybe somewhere very close to you are these sands that if you get onto them, that's the end of life for you. Um, you are going to be um, a bit frightened and uh, scared of it. These sailors knew that if they became trapped there, it was death for them all. So their first job was get rid of the cargo, lighten the ship so that it rides higher in the water and it's not going to get trapped on these shallow sands that you might come across. And then they throw the tackle overboard. Um, and the, the tackle is any mechanism for loading. So you know, if, if you're going to load grain or bags of grain or whatever it is onto your ship, you need tackle to lift it. So all that they threw overboard as well. Lighten the ship, lighten the ship, keep us floating high in the water so we won't get stuck on these sands. They had many days without the sight of sun or stars or landmarks and not a clue where they were. All hope of being saved was abandoned. They had abandoned eating, perhaps because they were seasick, or perhaps they could not cope with the thought of food in the midst of all this danger. Then Paul steps in. When he says, men, you ought to have followed my advice and not set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss, it sounds like I told you so. 
But I don't think it was that. I think he had to establish his credibility to them. He had to say, look, I gave you knowledge before, and it was good knowledge. Not that I told you so, but you didn't accept it. I do know what I'm talking about. Because he's got to move on to something more difficult to persuade. Typical sailors and, and Roman people and whoever, and criminals and things. He's having to go to have to persuade him that he's been spoken to directly by God. And that, that's a, a tougher thing to get over than just um, from my experience, um, I, I believe um, we shouldn't have done this thing. And this is what he says to them. He urges the sailors um, it, to keep up their courage and how they needed that when they all expected to die. It's pointless if you've got, when you've lost all courage, it's hard to get on and do the things you need to do. When you are feeling hopeless, you, you become lethargic, you lose energy, and this sort of thing. And he needs to strengthen them. He, sees, he needs to say to them, they're going to have a lot of work to do. Pick up your courage. Get up your courage. And he mentions a visit by the angel of God to him. And he says, to whom I belong and whom I serve. He makes his credentials absolutely. I've had an angel from God whom I um, belong to and whom I serve. And he has promised that none of you, not one of you, is going to lose your life. The ship's going to be lost, but you're not going to be lost. It's interesting that the Paul speaks to the, the angel speaks to Paul. And what does the Paul, he say to Paul? Paul is told not to fear. Do you think men of God don't get afraid? It wasn't just the sailors. If you are faced with danger, I, when I say men, I'm talking about men and women of God, please, I, I sometimes just forget to do the double thing, men and women. Men and women of God who get into situations of extreme danger very easily get afraid. And the angels having to say to Paul, don't be afraid. God's got this in hand. And Paul is in this desperate strait is told not to fear. He's told that he must stand before Caesar. Now he'd been told this before, three chapters earlier in, or four chapters earlier in Acts. He'd been told, you're going to stand before Caesar. And he could have stood right on his faith and not feared. I know I'm going to stand before Caesar, right? I know I'm going to stand before Caesar. And that may have been a great thing, but, but the fact that the angel's having to say to him, don't be afraid, he's, he's having to cling on to what God's told him. And Paul says that, he, that God has spoken to him, granting the lives of all who save with, them, with him. It was 276 people on that boat, but that's from next week's passage. Um, Paul again has to encourage their courage and to reassert that because of his belief in God and what God has promised, it will turn out exactly as he has been told. Then he tells them they're going to run aground on a certain island, but they're not told which one it is. There's somewhere in the middle of the Mediterranean, there's some island that they're going to run aground on. But when later 
it does happen exactly as Paul has spoken, how it's going to validate what Paul has said to them. If we encounter danger, how do we think we would deal with it? Have any of you, if I went round to you and said, what's the most dangerous thing? I'm not going to do it. You've encountered. How did you deal with danger? Or maybe you've had such a harmonious life that you've never had any danger. But how do you deal with the pressures and the danger? It's one thing to turn to the Lord privately, but how would we react in a public place? When the team from Shelter Now International was all arrested, which comprised, sorry, there were 16 Afghans who were arrested, but they were kept separately, and there were eight expatriates, um, I think two Americans, two Australians, and four Germans, and were thrown into prison, and they faced court, the trial of courts, and they faced the death penalty. What they did in the prison was every morning they prayed and worshipped for three hours. Um, and he, they, they said, <laughs> Georg, I remember, told me that they had a lot of Afghan women there who had been put in prison because they objected to the regime, and they used to do a lot of dancing, and the, the guards couldn't get them to stop dancing because it was their tradition to dance, and they danced. But in the, in the midst of all these people, they prayed and worshipped for three hours. And they even wrote new worship songs. And these were later produced, and a CD was produced, of the worship songs they had written, which Anne and I used to have some years ago, when they were still in the prison. I don't know whether any of us will ever face extreme danger. But it's good to know that Paul and the others faced extreme danger and the Lord protected them and brought them out. There's no guarantee. You've got to look at the lives of missionaries overseas and many of them faced extreme danger and were killed. And many of them faced extreme danger and the Lord brought them out. There's no, we have no guarantees of safety at, in this life. We may have if the Lord speaks to us privately and tells us, but we're not guaranteed. But we are asked to continue to have courage, to continue to have faith, and to continue to lift up the name of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Wow.